The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for March 27, 2022. Earlier this week, the Biden administration formally determined that Myanmar's military committed genocide and war crimes against humanity toward the Rohingya minority in the country. Myanmar's military, which now controls the country's government, launched a military operation in 2017 that forced over 730,000 Rohingya Muslims out of their homes and into Bangladesh. Human rights investigators also determined that Myanmar's military junta created a special command to carry out lethal attacks on unarmed civilians. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from February 2021. In the episode, Rohini Karup spoke with Ayman Thanh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist based in Myanmar. They discussed Myanmar's history of military rule, what it's like living through a coup, and what they expected in the weeks following the coup at that time. I'm Rohini Karup, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, February 19th, 2021. On February 1st, Myanmar's military overthrew the country's democratically elected government in a coup and declared a state of emergency for a year. It returns Myanmar to full military rule after nearly a decade of quasi-democracy that began in 2011. The coup came just hours before the start of a new session of parliament, which was expected to endorse the results of a November election where de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi's party won in a landslide, and the military-backed party performed poorly. The military has alleged voter fraud, but Myanmar's election commission has said there is no evidence to support its claims. Since then, the country has seen daily peaceful protests and large-scale strikes against military rule, at times clashing with security forces who have been seen using tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse crowds. To break it all down, I talked to A. Min Than, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist based in Myanmar. We discussed Myanmar's history of military rule, what it was like living through a coup, and what to expect in the coming weeks. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 19th, The Coup in Myanmar. So to start, I'm interested to hear about what you've seen and experienced living through the coup in Myanmar, but I want to start with some background to see how we got here. Could you describe Myanmar's history of military and civilian rule briefly, maybe starting with the coup in 1962? Sure. I think when we're talking about Myanmar, it's actually helpful to go even further back into the sort of invention of the country. So, you know, Myanmar became an independent country, or it became Burma uh, after British rule. But before that, it was essentially 
a loose collection, or it's, it's an area with a loose collection of states that were pretty much warring with one another in, at various times in sort of tributary relationships to one another. And so it was really under the British rule that this area became sort of a unified uh, administrative zone. And then only after the end of colonization really became the country with the borders that we see today. And so essentially, the moment after independence, various factions within Myanmar, especially um, the areas that are largely ethnic minority majority, decided that they no longer wanted to be in the union, that the things that they were promised when they decided to join the union were not being fulfilled. Um, And so the first 20 years of sort of democratic civilian rule after colonization became this extremely contentious, unstable time that was filled with conflict. And so the military essentially decided to do a coup in the 1960s in order to introduce stability, or at least that's how they framed it. And really since the beginning of the struggle for independence, the Myanmar military has seen itself as, and has has presented itself as the protectors of the nation, the, in some sense, founders of the nation, and one of the few forces that is able to keep the nation together, this nation that, you know, came together fairly recently. Right. So then in 1988, there were mass protests, and that's when Aung San Suu Kyi rose to prominence. Can you tell me about her and why she's such an important figure in Myanmar? So Aung San Suu Kyi is the daughter of General Aung San. He's considered the founder of the Myanmar military and uh, she has repeatedly in the past called um, the the Demidaw, the military, um, her father's army um, in this sort of very loving, affectionate way. And when she came back to Myanmar from ha- after having lived abroad for years, um, she came back to take care of her ailing mother. And she essentially found herself thrust into national politics at this very specific moment in time when people were just fed up, people wanted change, people wanted an election. And, you know, right before the really big protest in August, where there was this very brutal crackdown, the the dictator at the time had stepped down there. You know, it was still a military government. They still weren't promising elections at that point. But people really felt that, that in that moment, something revolutionary was possible. And she really stepped into the spotlight during that moment and she had the right pedigree you know for all the conversations about democracy and civic engagement and all of that you know people here still really they're not necessarily of like a monarchy mindset but there is still a belief in the sort of pedigree of a person um and she she really fit the bill and you know, in her coming back to take care of her mother, people really saw her as someone who not only loved the country, but loved loved her mother and like behaved as a good Burmese woman, a good Burmese child. And she's an amazing orator. You know, part of really her power is her public speaking skills and the fact that she has this incredible charisma that really gets people to really fall in love with her, right? There's a bit of a cult a bit. There's quite a lot of a cult of personality around her. And, you know, this goes for both Myanmar people as well as foreigners. And after she was arrested, after her party won the election in 1990, which then they were not able to rule because there was another coup, she was one of the few Myanmar voices that the 
international community was listening to when it came to things like, you know, how to deal with the Myanmar military regime. And, you know, we can argue that that may, you know, one person is probably not, it's probably not the greatest idea in the world to only listen to the sort of political analysis of one person. And then, yeah, I think it led to a situation in which the world really set itself up to be disappointed by her in the aftermath of the Rohingya crisis. Though I would argue that she, it was not so much that she did an about face, but that people had really built her up to be something that she really had never claimed to be. Right. So tell me a bit more about that. So she fell from international grace after defending the country against allegations of genocide over its treatment of the Rohingya minority. Can you tell me about what that was like and and what her image in Myanmar and abroad was like after that? So Aung San Suu Kyi is, for the most part, quite a straightforward person. I think there was a lot of narratives uh, in the international press, um, especially of a sense of like deep personal disappointment in her by a lot of institutions that gave her prizes or just really felt that they had some sort of close personal connection to her who felt that she had really changed. But if you go back to her writings, if you go back to her speeches um, and really listen carefully uh, while keeping in mind sort of Myanmar narratives about race, religion, belonging, citizenship, a lot of what she's saying is deeply in line with the sense of Myanmar as a country that is inherently Buddhist, where belonging is based on race and not on sort of civic engagement. And, you know, obviously she's not of the the group of xenophobic people in Myanmar who are actively committing uh, and advocating for harm towards those who are seen as outsiders. But in her mind, they are outsiders. And I think that's something that the international community didn't quite understand during all those years that she was being promoted and protected, or as far as they could, by them. Um, within the country, she's quite beloved. You know, if you look around at the protests, a lot of the signs, especially in the Bama, which is the ethnic majority group in Myanmar, in a lot of the Bama regions, you know, the signs are not about free political prisoners or uh, you know, free um, those who are detained in the NLD. It's save Aung San Suu Kyi, save our mother. You know, people call her mother. When she was defending the nation in international courts, a lot of the narratives uh, in the country was about how, like, how sympathetic she was and how we need to help save her and we need to help protect her. Look at this, you know, old, like, frail, small woman who's, like, carrying an entire country on her back as opposed to you know, an image of her as, you know, the head of state, essentially. I mean, she's not technically head of state, but she's given herself a position that basically puts her as in that position. Right. So you've sketched out Myanmar's military, some of the military rule, but since 2011, Myanmar has had a quasi-democracy. Can you explain what that means and what was the system of government since 2011? So Myanmar began to transition into democracy, or at least the Myanmar version of democracy, in 2010. There were elections um, in 2010 based on a constitution that was written or that was ratified in 2008. And so this constitution began to be written uh, really in earnest after the 2007 
Saffron Revolution, which was a, a really monk-led mass protest movement where monks essentially were protesting the fact that people were not being able to get their basic needs met, especially with oil prices rising uh, as much as they were. But, you know, this really, this constitution was really written during a dictatorship and designed by an institution that wanted to figure out how to maintain its power, maintain its access to resources and capital, but still allow some level of public participation in government. And so, you know, we transitioned into this quasi-civilian government, but because of the way the constitution was written, especially the fact that the military itself is guaranteed 25% representation in parliament, which means they are a, a body that can prevent any sort of vetoes, on top of the fact that there are military-aligned parties. Um, a lot of the major parties in Myanmar, including the NLD, boycotted that first election. And so the 2010 election ended up moving the country into a you know, military and military-aligned party-led government. And in a sort of ironic way, that government ended up being quite progressive in terms of how much change it made. You know, people were extremely skeptical of this government, not just in the country, but outside the country as well. The Bainsing government put in a lot of effort in order to show both the nation and the international community that they, they were taking this reform seriously and that this was sort of a real thing and not just another change from military hand to military hand. And during that time, um, censorship was greatly loosened. Non-state media became extremely prevalent. Um, there was a lot more freedoms. Uh, labor laws were reformed. There was quite a lot of political, economic, and other reforms that were objectively good in terms of improving rule of law in the country, as well as uh, stability, as well as uh, as well as improving the quality of life for quite a lot of people. And then in 2015, the sort of protest against the 2008 constitution had essentially died down. Or if not died down, then people had sort of decided that that was a battle that they wanted to fight after they got into power. And so the 2015 election was the first sort of real election in which it wasn't just uh, the military that was running in the election. And the NLD essentially won by a huge landslide. And, you know, things continued to progress. What was left of the skepticism from the international community began to be lifted. And, you know, the country was flooded with foreign direct investments. KFC came here, you know, like all of these sorts of things that kind of tend to happen when a, a very closed off society is now opened up to the world. And then the Rohingya crisis happened, uh, basically less than a year into NLD rule. And that really threw a kink into sort of the direction the country was heading into. So now we're in this, you know, period of democracy, quasi-democracy. Can you now walk me through what directly precipitated the coup? Yeah, I mean, the coup caught a lot of people by surprise myself included. Uh, I remember the day before the coup, I was sitting in a cafe, an outdoor cafe, it's a COVID, uh, with a couple of friends. And we were talking about like <laughs> all the places we would travel to once we got vaccinated. And then the next morning, we all woke up to a coup. But, you know, it wasn't that the coup wasn't possible. 
there were clearly signs, uh, gestures towards the potential of a coup. You know, we were talking about how likely we thought the coup would be, but the general consensus was there really wouldn't be one because it wouldn't make sense. So basically in 2020, because of COVID, the NLD government was getting a lot of pushback and criticism, uh, especially from other parties. And, you know, in the lead up to the election, quite a lot of splinter parties had formed. There was a lot of chatter about how much, how many seats they might actually win. There was a lot of people wondering if the NLD, while, you know, they might still win the election, no one thought the NLD would lose the election. People were debating how likely it was that the NLD would be forced to form a coalition government because they wouldn't win the majority that they would need in order to rule outright. And the the military party or the military aligned party, USDP, spent a lot of capital sort of uh, criticizing the NLD's handle, handling of COVID, of how the Union Election Commission was running the election. Um, you know, there was a lot of COVID restrictions. So in-person campaigning was dramatically limited um, in order for a party to talk about their platform and speak on that on national television, which is all, you know, state controlled. They had to essentially pass a censorship board and they had to submit their speeches ahead of time. And, you know, a number of parties accused the, the television stations of editing their recordings after the fact before they were uh, released to the public. And, you know, while there wasn't sort of a general push for the concept of widespread voter fraud before the election, um, there was a lot of conversation about how unfair the UEC was being, the Union Election Commission, because they are entirely appointed by the NLD, and sort of how biased the election would be in favor of the NLD. And this wasn't just the military aligned party, this was a lot of different parties who were making uh, these sorts of claims. Um, and, you know, we're generally able to back them up with very concrete examples. And so after the election happened, you know, people were surprised. Um, the NLD won by an even greater margin than they did in the past. And the election wasn't perfect. There were a lot of reports of certain people uh, who were not able to vote. Uh, some people reported that they were not asked for an ID when they voted. You know, there, obviously there are always going to be problems uh, in the Myanmar. The problems tend to be more pronounced. But, you know, there wasn't this sort of sense of widespread voter fraud, especially not any sort of conspiracy that was happening. But the USDP party, the military aligned party, lost seats it thought were safe. And so when the accusations of voter fraud start, began to come in, it was really in the townships that the military aligned party thought they would win. And those are the ones they were contesting. And then the sort of the military got involved and people were concerned about whether or not uh, they would accept the results of the election. And then online, the, the commander in chief, the person who is now in charge of Myanmar, I suppose we can call it, he came out and made statements kind of assuring the public that, you know, they would uphold the constitution and respect the results of the election. But as the days wore on, the language shifted much more to, you know, we will protect the constitution, we will uphold the constitution, and less and less was said about the results of the election. So the election was in November. Why was the coup carried out in February? So if you're hearing any background noise, uh, that is my entire neighborhood banging pots and pans. 
It's been a protest since the very first night of the coup, and the banging of pots and pans from a Myanmar household is a very sort of traditional ritual that one does in order to rid your house of evil spirits. And so it's a way for people to sort of voice their displeasure with the military government uh, and the coup without having to say those exact words. And they're essentially applying that. They're essentially saying that they are driving the evil spirit of dictatorship out, out of the country. So to go back to your question about sort of why now, basically the coup happened the morning that the new government was supposed to be formed. And so, so you have this nearly um, three-month period uh, within which there could have been a coup, but essentially because we, like America, also take really far too long for there to be a transition of power, that's why it happened the day it happened. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, And angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, It finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once, because the information will get back into the systems. It does it, and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports, and they send regular reports 
uh, at Delete Me. You know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of, but then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So how was the coup actually carried out, and what was the justification for it? So the main justification for the coup was the protection of democracy, essentially that they, the military were protecting democracy because there were widespread allegations of voter fraud, and only by doing the coup were they able to ensure that, you know, democracy remained in Myanmar. And the way it happened was essentially very early on the morning of February 1st, tanks, armored personnel vehicles, uh, uh, personnel convoys drove into Nebida, which is the capital, but it's also you know, essentially an, an administrative city. It's not really sort of a residential city where people live that has sort of this a history the way Yango, Mandalay, and other cities around Myanmar does, essentially drove into the areas where these about-to-be-sworn-in uh, members of parliament were living and essentially put everyone there under house arrest. They arrested Aung San Suu Kyi, they arrested uh, then-President Wim Yit. Yeah, shut down the internet, basically announced uh, that they were taking over the country. And they arrested Aung San Suu Kyi. What was she charged with? So basically, when she was arrested, we no one knew what she was going to be charged with. And that's actually why you didn't see very many protests on the street the first few days after the coup. So legally, the they were able to hold her for 72 hours before charging her with something. And so in those first 72 hours, the general Myanmar public did not do anything. They were pretty silent, uh, other than the pots and pans banging, of course. And, you know, people were organizing, talking to one another as, far, as much as they could with telecommunications down the way they were and preparing for the worst. But it wasn't until that third day that we learned that she was going to be charged with the illegal importation of walkie-talkies. Uh, and that is what she is going to be tried for. She was supposed to have her first court date on Monday, but they postponed the trial. Um, it's not clear yet if she will be allowed to have a lawyer or really how much interaction she's been able to have with lawyers that the NLD, her party, has retained for her so far. 
but she's currently remanded for, you know, what, even if she is guilty, is essentially a clerical error. So you had mentioned the, you know, the day before the coup and, and people woke up to the news. Can you talk a bit about how you found out about the coup and what it was like living through that the first couple days? Yeah, so I forgot to mention this earlier, but the day before the coup, so January 31st, um, there were pictures circulating on the line of tanks around the country. So there's a tank in Yangon, um, you know, a tank in Mandalay, these sort of like vague but threatening photos. And people still weren't that concerned, but, you know, it was sort of in the background of everyone's mind. And so I went to bed that night and then I woke up to just so many phone calls, so many missed calls and messages. And I woke up because my mother was calling me and like just seeing that many missed calls and messages, like my brain automatically just went, oh, there's been a coup. Like this, it can't be anything else. Like (laughs) no one's going to contact me at five in the morning like this. But yeah, those first few days were quite surreal because like I said, you know, people kind of just went about their business. Obviously, there was the pots and pans banging at night. But for most of the rest of it, I mean, the internet wasn't good, but it like never really is that good. Um, there weren't really massive street protests, you know, like our cities weren't occupied. Like we saw the tank on January 31st, but no one saw it in those first few days. So it was a very surreal time in which there were clear signs that something was very wrong. You know, the internet, the banks were down that first day. But other than that, you know, like life kind of went on. And what have the weeks since the coup been like? How have people in Myanmar been responding to the coup? Yeah. So after Aung San Suu Kyi was charged, people were no longer worried about going outside to protest. A big part of what kept people indoors and a little bit more quiet those first few days was because until they knew what she was being charged with, they didn't want to protest and have their actions essentially uh, be retroactively used against her um, for, you know, potentially like inciting riots or disturbing the peace or something like that. But ever since then, there's been massive protests, essentially. There's been days, especially earlier on uh, after the coup, where there was just hundreds of thousands of people in the street to the point where uh, essentially like even the traffic police became extremely overwhelmed and very quickly a, a movement developed, uh, the civil disobedience movement, where the goal is to essentially deprive the military regime of any ability to govern as well as any level of legitimacy from like government institutions, essentially. So, you know, the target has been um, central bank workers, um, firefighters, police, especially doctors, lawyers, engineers. You know, the Myanmar government and the sort of civil service, you know, like a lot of former British colonies, it's, it's a very large proportion of the Myanmar public that's employed the rule of the government. And so if they can get essentially this very large and significant chunk of the country and the sort of institutional memory that they have to completely stop cooperating. The idea is that at some point, the military regime will have to say, okay, well, we can't govern, so we must at least uh, compromise and start to talk to people. 
And you know, as the days of mass protests have worn on, what you've also what we've also seen is that the protesters are becoming more strategic and targeted with what they seem to be trying to accomplish through their protests. So, you know, the first few days uh, you saw these sort of massive marches, um, and there were sort of confrontations with the police where I don't know if confrontation is the right word, but there were these sort of uh, interactions with the police where a mass of protesters would go up to them, give them water, flowers, snacks, and say, um, you know, join us. You are the people's police. Um, the police in Myanmar report directly to the military, but essentially you have citizens essentially talking to the police and saying, abandon your post, right? Like, pick our side. And then, you know, what we've been seeing in the last couple of days is, at least in Yangon, is protests have been extremely concentrated on embassies. There's like protests at the Chinese and Russian embassies being against those countries where people, out of the perception that China and Russia have been protecting the protecting and supplying uh, the Myanmar military on the international stage, uh, assisting them with the internet blackouts, you know, just training soldiers and things like that. And then there's also been protest at the U.S. embassy and embassies for sort of Western liberal democracies, uh, essentially telling them to do more, uh, to get involved, to take more actions rather than simply putting out statements. And, you know, yesterday uh, we saw protest at the central bank where the security forces were essentially trying to force uh, bank employees to continue working despite the fact that many of them were trying to participate in the strike. And you saw protesters trying to prevent the security forces from forcing the bank workers to work. Each of these smaller protests, although there's fewer people, are, are much more specific in what they're trying to accomplish. And how organized are the protests? Uh, it's a little bit hard to say. I mean, I think what we're seeing right now among the civil disobedience movement is uh, a group of people who have learned a lot from the protest movements in Hong Kong and Thailand and other other countries around the world where it's far more leaderless. Um, it's far more sort of, it's far more of a, a network and of small nodes as opposed to, you know, having any sort of uh, centralized organizing force. One would expect that the NLD would be playing much more of a leadership role, especially now that the the head of the NLD um, and the main leaders have been jailed and that the party has won the election and, you know, at least from their perspective, should be the rightful government of the country. And how have security forces responded to the protests? Uh, the security forces have been escalating day by day, essentially. Um, so the first few days of mass protests, there was almost no military that was seen. You know, if you were around a few strategic areas, uh, such as City Hall in Yangon, you could see that there were definitely soldiers stationed inside of City Hall. They were wearing, you know, war helmets, full body armor, were carrying uh, machine guns, but you know, you, they were not pointed at the crowd, um, and they seemed, you know, fairly relaxed. And what you saw on the streets were largely traffic police, actually, but also in some areas that that were sort of barricaded in order to prevent protesters from uh, going into specific areas like the area in front of Suji's house or into City Hall. Um, you know, there were also riot police who were armed. 
after a few days of that kind of protest and interaction, um, the water cannon guns came out, basically. And then, you know, they started shooting the water cannon guns. And then rubber bullets began to be used. And one woman, this young woman, was hit in the head by a live bullet and, you know, was pretty much immediately declared brain dead uh, after being taken to the hospital. And now it's, you know, scaled back a little bit in that, or at least the escalation hasn't escalated as much, or at least at the same sort of rapid pace, uh, where, you know, there continues to be rubber bullets, there continues to be water guns, there continues to sort of be uh, arrests uh, and the using of batons to beat protesters. But the sort of worst hasn't happened yet, at least in terms of sort of indiscriminate firing of live bullets into crowds, into residential areas, the usage of the tanks. But in the last couple of days, we are now seeing soldiers on the street. Uh, it looks much more like, I think, what a lot of people imagine when they hear coup, where there are tanks on the street, there are army convoys traveling constantly. You just see, you know, dozens and dozens of armed men in, you know, army trucks being driven around uh, cities. And, you know, the people that the protesters are interacting with are, it's not just police anymore, it's definitely, you know, army soldiers with machine guns and the right to fire on them with tanks. Um, yesterday in Mandalay, we saw a slightly less lethal version of what, you know, could be coming, uh, where Mandalay police began firing onto the crowd and into residences uh, and chasing people down with rubber bullets and injuring quite a number of people, arresting quite a number of people and stopping journalists from doing their work. So so tell me a bit more about, about the journalists. So you've been reporting on the ground at a time when that's particularly risky. What's it like being a journalist in Myanmar now? Um, so I think, as far as I'm aware, the latest number is eight journalists have been arrested and uh, two have been released. You know, up till the last couple of days, uh, there wasn't sort of, there didn't seem to be intentional targeting of journalists who were out in the field covering the coup. So I think very early on, like the first day that they started using rubber bullets, um, a journalist was hit in the back. But, you know, he wasn't wearing a press jacket and a lot of people aren't identifying themselves physically uh, as press you know, in, in the same sort of way that you saw in Hong Kong, because there is the fear that journalists would be the first people targeted as opposed to protesters. But that journalist, it seemed like he kind of just got caught with the rest of the protesters and it wasn't sort of an intentional attempt to silent press. It wasn't until the last couple of days that they began to arrest journalists who were covering the protest and, you know, giving out orders to journalists at protests to stop filming or essentially trying to stop them from doing their job. But really, since the the coup began, there has been a a more sort of legal campaign in order to intimidate journalists from doing their job. So the military has put out a number of orders that essentially are warnings to journalists to really tread carefully. So, you know, we have been told that we're not allowed to use the word coup. We are also not supposed to call them the regime or the junta. And there's also been a number of statements that have been put out to the public that say that legal action will be taken against those who spread misinformation or who, you know, cause panic among the people 
and you know these it's you know very thinly coded language uh, essentially telling journalists that you know we determine what the truth is and if we don't agree with what you're writing then there will be consequences and you know life as a reporter under the NLD already wasn't you know the most amazing thing um, and so a lot of journalists are now reporting in hiding. Um, you know, quite a number of people are not sleeping in their own homes, moving around quite a lot. Um, you know, everyone's using a G- uh, VPN. And yeah, there's, there's just quite a lot of fear. There's been international condemnation of the coup and the Biden administration has announced targeted sanctions against the military regime, blocking the military from accessing $1 billion of assets in, held in the United States. Have those measures had any effect so far? I mean, it's difficult to say from the military side how much effect that has. Um, senior leadership on, in the military was already under sanction because of the Rohingya issue anyway. So, you know, it's difficult to say how impactful these new sanctions are and how much they actually go into uh, decision making by the people who were already sanctioned, who, you know, maybe there are a few more family members are sanctioned. We did see that yesterday morning, the regime did pull out quite a lot of money from the Myanmar economic banks that could indicate that there is concern about resources and capital from their end. But, you know, I, it, at this point, it's, it's still a lot of speculation. From the protesters' point of view, what has been done is definitely not enough. We're continuing to see protests in front of the U.S. Embassy demanding more action. But, you know, the protesters are also not united in what they're asking for. And I think there's a little bit of irony in the fact that a lot of it's likely that a lot of these people were also protesting the international community for trying to do too much during the Rohingya crisis or ab- about the Rohingya crisis. But, you know, if you go to the embassy, you see signs where people are asking for drone strikes uh, and military intervention and like essentially like UN occupation of Myanmar in order to um, go against the dictatorship that they fear is, I mean, I guess, I don't know what to call it, what we're in right now, but essentially uh, to undo the coup. So what are you expecting to see in the coming days and weeks? I think it's always a little bit dangerous to try to to predict the future. And I also think like, you know, I didn't see the coup coming, so who am I to predict the future? But I think there's a lot of fear about history repeating itself. So... You know, in 1988, protests were allowed to go on for a few days. In 2007, protests were allowed to go on for a few days. And then there was a brutal and violent crackdown that led to the deaths of a number of people, of people being killed in the streets in broad daylight. So I think that's definitely one one thing that is very possible given the past um, and definitely something that you know, concerns a lot of people who are here. But I think in terms of, you know, how the military regime moves forward, how the civil disobedience movement moves forward, I think it's quite likely, you know, unless there is this sort of immediate and extreme violent uh, crackdown that kind of silences everyone, that this might be a very protracted struggle where, there's essentially a siege going on, right? Um, the public is essentially trying to starve 
the military regime of resources, of legitimacy, of cooperation. And, you know, that's going to take a while for that to really be impactful, right? Like, there's a few things. If all the people in the electricity department decides to stop working, um, if people just really decide, like, the country will not function, then maybe something faster might happen. But it's, I don't think that's quite that's very likely, you know, it's likely that, you know, people who are in kind of essential services are, one, not going to want to do that to the rest of their country people, but also understand that strategically, it's probably not wise to deprive everyone in the country of things like electricity and water. So, you know, if they're going to try to thread, if the, if the civil disobedience movement is going to try and thread this more middle line of ensuring that the public has what it needs. But uh, if they also want to try and deprive the military regime of the ability to govern, um, it's going to be something that will take months, if not years. And the military has also announced that they will hold new elections at the end of the year. And that, you know, this is a state of emergency that is only for one year. So, you know, I think if there are no huge changes in the meantime, then, you know, it's possible that there will be an election in a year. Now, as to how free and fair that election will be is, I think, questionable. But I, I think we're, we're in this for the long run. That's all I have. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and share us on Twitter and Facebook. As always, thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.